morning. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. So we start the last book of the last book, or last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. What did God want his people to know right before Jesus came? What did he want them to have fresh in their minds in preparation for Jesus? And that's what this chapter tells us. We're going to look at the first, first three verses of the chapter. And again, this is a message from God to the people of Israel about uh, 2,500 years ago from from God to the prophet Malachi, to his people, and then to us. So verse 1, chapter 4 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and go out leaping like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard someone say, what would Jesus do? And you've seen the bracelets. For a while, there was a kind of a big industry where you could buy all sorts of stuff that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? Uh, I found that the more likely you were to wear that kind of stuff, the less likely you were to know what Jesus would actually do. <laughs> but that's just personal opinion. But what would Jesus do? Isn't that the question that Christians want to know? And that's sort of what, if we get that answer, we would know what to do next. That's exactly what this passage is telling us. What would Jesus do? The answer is here. We don't have to wonder. What is God's perspective? Have you wondered, like, what's going on in this world? If I could only see things from God's point of view, then everything would be okay. I'd understand. Because right now, nothing makes sense. This passage, again, gives us God's perspective, which tells us how we should think about the things around us. You know, there's a big disagreement. uh, There can be big disagreements over the same event that everyone witnesses and everyone sees the same thing, but the reaction's different. We all watch something happen or see something happen or hear about something happen, and yet despite the same information, the response is different. Why? Because we're thinking about the same thing differently. So how should we think about things? That's what this passage is going to talk about. We're going to see three things. What is the day of the Lord? Right? Because it's talking about the day that's coming. What is the day of the Lord? All through the book of Malachi, he's been talking about this day. Secondly, what will happen on that day? If it's such a big deal, what's going to happen? And thirdly, what happens after that day? What are the results of it? We're going to try to show how that is directly applicable to us. So for behold, the day is coming. What would Jesus do if he were here? That's exactly what Malachi is saying. He's saying, I'll tell you, he is going to be here. God is going to come down to earth. 
And this is what he's going to do. So when it says here, the day is coming, and then over in chapter 3 it says the day of the Lord, that doesn't mean a literal sort of one 24-hour calendar date. The day of the Lord means God is going to arrive on this earth himself and exercise his will. Have you looked around you noticed that people are not doing what God wants them to do? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? So the day of the Lord is the day when God comes down to earth and says, now we're going to do what I want to do. We're going to do things my way. He's been letting everyone do things their way, and the world's getting continually messed up. The day of the Lord is when he comes down and does things his way. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, right, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the day of the Lord is. It's the answer to that prayer. When you pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God says, okay, the day is coming. What day? The day when his will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. That sounds great, doesn't it? Well, that depends. You see, this same passage is either a warning that's God's coming or an encouragement that God's coming. It all depends on how you think about it. Do you want God's will? Then the day of the Lord is a time to rejoice. Are you opposing God's will? Then the day of the Lord is a time to be afraid. So the same information gets two responses. And it all depends on how you think about God, what your relationship is with God. So it's a warning or an encouragement. When God comes to this earth, he will do his will. He will exercise his will. He will make his will be done. And the reaction will be either good or bad, depending on your relationship to God's will. So what's this have to do with us? Christians look at the world differently than everybody else. We look at it sort of from a top down. Everyone else says, look at this event and look at that event, therefore this event. We say, God said, this is what's going to happen. And what that does, it, it disconnects us a little bit from this world, but not in a bad way. Sometimes people say, you're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. No, you're too earthly minded to be of any earthly good. See, if we had God's perspective, we wouldn't be so bound up by this world. Where do wars come from? Where does violence come from? Where does oppression come from? It's people trying to get what they want out of this world. And so they do what is necessary in this world to get what they want out of this world. Sometimes it's from fear. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them. So they exercise violence or manipulation or selfishness because they're afraid or they're greedy. They want it right now. And so they kill someone for it or they push people away. It's because all they can think about is what they're going to get right now. What this is saying is there's a day coming that hasn't, that is not right now. So think about that day. And when you think about that day, when you come back to this day, you realize, oh, I've got a different feeling about today. You see, if all you've got to look forward to is what you can get right now, 
you're going to be very concerned about your job status, about your health status, about your relationship status, because it's all you've got. But when you have a divine perspective, you can say, well, from God's point of view, it's going to be different in the future than it is right now. So whatever's happening right now, all this bad stuff, it's going to be different. And that changes how you feel about right now. But if all you've got is your perspective, then all you can see is what's around you. And as you've noticed, it's not good around you. Or maybe it is good, and you're distracted by it. So a divine perspective raised you above this world so you can actually see this world. The wise people in this world are not enmeshed in it. They rise above it. When you're lost, you don't walk down into a basement. What do you do? You go to the top of a building so that you can get better perspective. Because when you're at ground level, all you can see is the stuff around you. You're lost in a forest. All you can see are the trees. So you climb to the top, and now you can see over them. That's what this verse is doing for us. It's saying, step back from your life and step into God's world. And then you'll be able to understand your life. But as long as you just stay on this level, you won't make sense of anything. And you'll do things to try to make sense of this world that end up hurting yourself and those around you. So a Christian looks at the world differently than everyone else does. They take the long picture, the long perspective. And this is how you do it. You look at the day that is coming. He says, behold, the day is coming. Look. The word behold means look. Pay attention. Stop paying attention to what you're already paying attention to, right? When he says behold, he has to get their attention. Have you noticed that it's very easy to be distracted by what's happening today and not think about God? Well, God's always there, but the bill's right in front of me. I just had the car accident. My back hurts right now. So the behold is saying, stop thinking about those things. Think about the day that is coming. And that is so hard to do that if you do it, you're a different person. So what God does is he gives us more information about that day. What will happen on that day? So God is going to come to this earth, exercise his will, make what's true in heaven true on earth. And what is it? Well, first of all, it's fire, the fire of judgment. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. That word oven's like a furnace. Remember the old furnaces in the basements? If you really want to destroy something, you'd put it in the furnace because it was so hot. Okay, Think like that, like where they make iron, they melt metals in those furnaces. That's what the day is going to be like. When God shows up, It'll be like a burning oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up. Do you know that people get away with a lot of stuff? You know, people get away with more than they get caught for. Some people get away with something forever, their whole life. They never get caught. And in fact, they grow more powerful and more wealthy because of the things they get away with. You yourself have things that you've done wrong that you've never been held accountable for. Maybe years, maybe decades now. As far as everybody knows, nothing happened because you got away with it. We like to think that everyone gets what's due them, but that's not true. 
So what do we do? We look at God's perspective and we see that in this life, people get away with bad stuff. And you know what's worse than people getting away with bad stuff? Is people who get away with bad stuff, but everyone thinks they're good people. You ever notice that? They're like, no, 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 stop. Why are, you, why are you making such a big deal out of this person? He's not a good person. But everyone thinks they are. And so the evil are called good and are raised up to powerful positions and are honored and respected and listened to despite or even because of the bad things they've done. Perfect illustration. Everything in American politics. Just pick a party, pick a candidate, pick anything. And you'll see people who are not doing right, yet being respected and honored. And if that's all you see, you will get very discouraged. Or you'll be very motivated to dump your whole life into politics. Or work. Or trying to make things right. But if you take this perspective, what do we see? There's a day coming when all those evil people will be exposed for exactly who they are. The day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. Not some, not the worst of them, but all of them. Every single person who's been getting away with it their whole lives will be brought out. And who are these people? Two descriptions for the same kind of person. All the proud. Sometimes we say, man, look what they're doing. Look how bad their actions are. Look what they're, look how they're hurting people. And we usually follow that up with something like, at least in our heads, I would never do that. I'm glad I don't do those things. I can't believe that they would treat someone like that. I can't believe that they would do that. The I can't believe part is you saying, I would never do that. I don't do bad things. I don't lie to people. I don't steal things. I don't hurt people. In other words, I'm not an evildoer. But he doesn't start with evildoers. He starts with the proud. Who will be exposed? Those who think they're pretty good. That's who will be exposed. And what will happen to them? They'll be burned up. You see, there's two kind of people here that we're going to see later, those who fear the Lord. But the first kind of person is not those who fear the Lord, but those who fear themselves. And the word fear there means respect or revere. You trust your own perspective, don't you? You make all your decisions based mostly on what you think. You see people spend very little time doing something or studying something, but be very confident that they're right about it. You ever seen that happen? Maybe once in your life or this week? They're proud. We are proud. We are very confident that we're right. If we were to take a poll of who thought they were right about an issue, everyone would raise their hand. Because if you thought you were wrong, you would change your position, wouldn't you? But pride tells you that you are qualified and should be respected. That you are the one to be listened to. That you know better. That you have the perspective that everyone else needs. Don't you wish people would just listen to you? That's pride. That's raising yourself up to a position where you should get what you deserve, and that's respect. But here it says that those people are like stubble. 
And what happens to people with proud mindsets? When they're given the opportunity, they do evil. See, not everyone does the same kind of evil, not because they're better people, but because they don't have the opportunities. Because here it says, all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. In other words, the proud and those who do bad things are the same person. So if you say, I do struggle with pride, I do think people should listen to me, but I don't do the bad things that that politician does, that's true, but maybe only because you're not in the position. And if you were given that position, what would you do then? You see, your heart dictates your actions. And if you have a proud, self-centered, self-righteous heart, when you get the power to act on it, you produce evil. So you don't judge yourself simply like, well, I haven't done these things, therefore I'm better. But would you do them? So the proud... And those who act on their pride will be exposed. And what will happen to them once they're exposed? They're purified. What's fire do? Fire purifies. But if you are evil, when you're purified, when you're stubble, when you put stubble or leaves or hay or straw into a fire, what's left? Nothing's left. So if you are evil and you're purified by fire, there's nothing left. And so that's what it's saying. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. God is holy. God has no blemishes. God has no faults. God is perfect. And when God's holiness, that sense, that perfection that God has, is manifest into this world, the Bible uses the word fire to describe it. When the perfection of God and the power of God enters into this world, God says it looks like fire. Just like here, they shall burn them up. But this is all through the Bible. So what I'm going to do here is, for this and the next part, take some look at places in the Bible where this is used. You know where fire is first used in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, everything's perfect. God makes man, creates him in a garden. There's no fire. There's no need for it. Everything's perfect. Then sin comes into the world. Man sins. So God drives man out, out of the Garden of Eden where the tree of life is. And what does he do? He places a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. When sinful man wants to go back into perfection, there's a fire there. And you don't pass through the fire. You can imagine an angel, a cherubim with a flaming sword that turns every way. Whatever that means was you don't get past it. You have to go through it. And if you go through it, you're destroyed. So the fire of God's holiness keeps the garden pure. You remember Elisha? Elisha is a prophet. King Ahab is evil and he's worshiping false gods. So Elijah goes to him and says, Let's have a contest. You get 450 of your best false prophets and meet me on this mountain, and I'll show up by myself. And all the people showed up. And Elisha says to the people, who do you serve, the 450 false prophets or me and the true God? And the people didn't say anything. So Elisha builds an altar, and they build an altar, 
and they spend all day trying to get something to happen, nothing happens. But when Elisha builds the altar, you know what happens? It says the fire of the Lord descends and burns everything up. And you know what the people's reaction was? They took the 450 prophets and they executed them. The fire of God purges out evil. That's how the Bible uses fire. Revelation 20. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Why? Because God's holiness purges evil. And if you're not holy, you're purged by fire. You're destroyed by it. Even creation. Have you noticed that creation is broken, is burned? Have you noticed that your body doesn't respond correctly? There's something wrong with you? Why? Because sin has entered into creation. So 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And what will happen on the day of the Lord? The heavens will pass away, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Even creation will be burned. The fire that God, that the Bible's talking about here will burn up everything bad. God will fix the problems of evil. He'll get rid of all the problems by fire, by his holiness. See, here's what the Bible teaches that's profound, that's hard to sort of for limited humans to get. Evil must be destroyed completely or it will grow. Evil must be destroyed completely or it will grow. He says, I will burn them up, says the Lord, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Because what happens to a tree if you just cut the branches off? It comes back. Or if you just destroy the roots, you know the tree can reproduce. So in order for God to fix the problem, when he shows up unto earth, he destroys all parts of evil. The source of evil that you can't see under the ground and the evil you can see. Burned up, root and branch. What's the solution to evil? This is it. Destruction. Complete destruction. If you leave a little bit of leaven, what does leaven do? What does yeast do? It spreads. So you can't leave any. You have to take it all out. And here's the warning. If you are evil, or you have a little bit of evil in you, you must be destroyed in order to make way for the good. Look at the end of 2 Peter 3. It says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But how do you get the new heavens and the new earth? Only after this earth is burned. You see, goodness can't come into the world until evil is driven out. And if you are evil, God has to remove you to make way for the good. This is a warning. It's a dreadful, terrible warning. So bad that in chapter 3 it says, The Lord of hosts is coming, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire. It's like, oh, Jesus, come quickly. Are you sure? Is there evil in you? Are you proud? Are you an evildoer? Because when God shows up with fire to judge, you'll be destroyed. But the day of the Lord, we learn in the New Testament, is actually two parts. 
What it's talking about here is the final day when judgment will be dispensed to everybody. But you know the day actually came in part before that, when Jesus showed up. You see, Jesus is God, isn't he? And the day of the Lord was when God comes to this earth and Jesus came to this earth. But why hasn't the second part come? Why hasn't all the bad people been taken care of? Grace. God says, I'm going to save the bad part for later so that you can avoid it. And what's the first part? What happened when the day of the Lord came to earth? It says, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. That's happened. Jesus came to this earth. The day of the Lord came. And the son of righteousness. You see, holiness is the goal here, to be like God. But since we're not holy, all we get is burned up. So what needs to happen to us so that we can be holy? We have to be fixed. We have to be changed. So the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Now, it's interesting what healing means. If you need healing, there's something wrong with you. See, there's only two categories of people in this passage, the evil and the healed. The prideful person wants to say, well, there's a third category of those who are good enough. But this says you're either wicked and will be burned, or you're, you were wicked and now you're healed. That's what God is saying about everybody on this earth. You're either still evil or you've been healed. And how are you healed? How does the fire, the son of righteousness, heal you? Doesn't fire destroy? Isn't the sun made of fire? Isn't that heat? Well, the Bible talks about a different approach to fire, where people are protected from the fire. Genesis chapter 15. Man is sinful. Man is lost. Adam has been kicked out of the garden. There's no way to get back in. The flaming sword is going to prevent it. So God says, let's make another way. So he finds a man called Abram. And he said, Abram... We've got to fix the world, and I'm going to use you to do it. But Abram's a bad person, too. So an agreement has to be made. Genesis chapter 15, And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, this is Abram and God meeting, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven, same word as here in Malachi, a furnace, and a burning torch that passed through those pieces. That was pieces of a sacrifice. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. You see, the same fire of holiness showed up, the same burning furnace. But you know what Abram was? He was protected. God made a covenant that said, the fire will not hurt you. The burning oven will not burn you up. Fast forward a few hundred years. Now we're in Egypt. The people are in captivity. God says, I'm going to deal with evil. I'm going to deal with Egypt. But God says, but Israel, you, I know you're in captivity, but you're evil too. And I'm going to kill all the firstborn sons. But here's how you can avoid it. You take a perfect lamb, and that's going to be your protection lamb. And God says, you take this lamb... In, verse, in Exodus chapter 12, and they shall eat the flesh on that night, that was the night they were going to be delivered, roasted in fire. With unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled it all with water, 
but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. You see what's happening? The fire that should have destroyed the people destroys the lamb. Completely. Nothing could be left because God's holiness doesn't leave anything behind. You don't save a little bit for later. God's holiness is so perfect that it burns up everything. Remember Elisha who called down the fire? You see, Elisha is a picture of, of God's holiness on this earth. So he calls down the fire and destroys them. But when it's time for Elisha to go, you know how he leaves this earth? In a chariot of fire. A chariot of fire driven by horses of fire. And he's taken to heaven. The holiness of God does not destroy Elisha. It carries him. Now, what's the difference between Elisha and the wicked? Remember Daniel? Remember the three Hebrew children? The king said, you will worship a false god. And he said, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? But these children of Israel, these three Hebrews, did fear God. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He throws them into the fire. Everyone around him is killed. They fall into the fire. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke and says to his counselors, Didn't we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, king. Look, he answered, I see four men, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. What's the difference? The fire is the same fire. The same fire that burned up the altar was the same fire that carried Elisha. The same fire that burned up these men was the same fire they were in. What's the difference? The protection. God is protecting from the fire or he's destroying with fire. You're either protected by the wings, healing in his wings, or you're exposed to it. How can we get into that second category of protection and not the first one? The fire, we want the fiery chariots. We want the chariots of fire to carry us. We don't want the fire to burn us up. That's what Malachi is talking about. He's saying, look past your life. Look past your day. Look to another day that's coming. When you won't have to be afraid of the fire. And that day did come. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist announcing what Malachi is talking about. He's the messenger. And John answers saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's what Jesus brings, a baptism of fire. But he also brings a baptism by the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. This is the beginning of what we know as the church. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the fire is helping. 
not destroying. It's carrying. It's empowering. It's being baptized. It's a promise of good news. But what keeps us from being burned? Do you want the fire from heaven? Do you want the baptism of fire? What about all the bad things you've done? When all your bad works come in contact with that promised fire, you'll be destroyed, root and branch. So what keeps us from being burned? The same thing that kept them from being burned. Someone's burned for us. John said the next day, after he talked about the baptism, the Jews would have a fire. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why did he choose lamb? Why not the word? Why not the truth? Why not the way, the bread? Because the baptism of fire that he said was coming needed a lamb to take it for us. Just like the Passover lamb was burnt with fire, so Christ became the lamb for us and was burned with fire. Why won't you be destroyed in this day? Because Christ was burned for you. The Passover lamb roasted with fire. Christ, our Passover lamb, destroyed by fire. So now we don't fear the fire. The Hebrew children did not fear the fire because Jesus was with them. The Israelites did not fear the the angel that would kill the sons because they had the Passover lamb burned for them. Do you fear the day of God? You should, unless you have Christ. If you don't know Christ, God's coming for you. He's coming for you with fire, and you will be destroyed. But if you have Christ, he's already come for us. He's already been burned for us, and now the fire only empowers us. It doesn't cause us fear. That's what the day of the Lord is. That's what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. And what are the results? What's the application directly? Look at this last verse in chapter, uh, verse 2. But you who are healed, you shall go out. Some translations say grow fat, but really it should be go out leaping like stall-fed calves. Have you ever seen a young animal get released from its pen after being cooped up for a long time? What's it want to do? Jumps around, acts crazy. Runs around, leaping, running into people. He said, once you've been healed, that'll be you. Once evil's been done away with, now you can have joy. You know why you're not happy? Because of sin. Whether it's your sin or other people's sin. You're unhappy because of things wrong. But one day, all the wrong's going to be taken away. And there'll be no reason to be unhappy. When the day of the Lord comes, the fire will purge away the evil, leaving only goodness and joy. And for those who are part of that kingdom, it's a kingdom of joy. So what a Christian does is we look to that day when creation is made new, and we believe it so much that we can be happy right now. We can say, the new creation is going to be so perfect that I can be happy in the old creation. This is what hope is. Hope is not, oh, I hope it happens. Hope is saying, because I know it's going to happen, I'm happy right now. But you're sick right now, but one day I won't be sick. 
And so I can be happy while I'm sick because I know for a fact that I won't be sick one day. So everything bad that's happening right now will not be bad in the future. And we, by faith, bring that into the present. We transport the future to the present by faith. And so that no matter what happens on this earth, it will never affect the future. You can't get so sick on this earth that you'll be sick in heaven. Your family cannot be so messed up that you'll be unhappy in the new creation. There is nothing on this earth that can be so bad that will make anything different in the new creation. And that fact, brought to us by the Holy Spirit in the Scripture, changes how we feel right now. And so when bad things happen in our life and in the world around us and in politics, we're like, that's bad, but it won't always be bad. And I don't need to get so worked up about it. And when good things happen, you say, well, it's not going to be as good as the future. And so your life is stable. The events of your life are messed up. They're all over the place. But you're stable in them because you know what Christ has done for you in the past and what he will do for you in the future. That's the only way you're going to be happy. You will never be happy on this earth unless you've got something that's not on this earth. Only by knowing what you have in the next life will you be happy in this life. Charles Albert Tinley was an African-American hymn writer. He wrote this song maybe a hundred years ago. You ask me where I get the joys that make my heart so light, which all the gloom of day destroys and gives me songs at night. Hallelujah, I belong to the King. I am saved now and I have a right to sing, for the light from heaven fills my soul and the night has passed away. You know he's not promising in that hymn? That your life will be any different right now. But what he is saying is the light from heaven will enter this world. The sun of righteousness will rise and shine on you right now. And the fire that destroys evil will light your way. So what are you called to do? Believe it. That's it. Believe that God is coming back, that he has come to this earth. Believe that you need him. You see, this is nothing if you don't think you've got a problem. Believe that you have a problem, that you have, will be burned, and trust that Christ will save you if you trust him. And if you've done that, trust that he's coming back, that he will purge evil, and he'll take you to a place where there is no bad, there is no evil. If you'll believe that, you'll be a different person. And people won't understand it because there'll be no evidence in your life. And all you can say is, I know whom I believe. Let's pray.